Well, there is a, a true story, a true story of an evangelist who was holding a series of revival meetings, evangelistic meetings, and in preparation for the revival, um, attempts were made to call many of the people in the town to invite them to attend and come. And in the course of these invitations, one individual was urged to attend as they talked to him on the phone, but he was very reluctant because of the possibility if he came to this revival meeting, he would have an epileptic seizure. This man on the phone was concerned about that. And so sympathetic with the man's apprehensions, the evangelist assured the man that every effort would be made to avoid to avoid possible injury or maybe even embarrassment for him. So the ushers would be forewarned. They would be instructed as to how to deal with the situation should he suffer from a seizure during the meeting. And to be absolutely certain, they would reserve a chair closest to the door for him to sit in. Then all of the ushers would know uh, to be alert to any possible problem. And with these assurances, the man promised he would attend that night. So the meeting began. The ushers were prepared as promised. One chair at the back was conspicuously empty, and the ushers waited for the special guest to arrive. And the singing had begun when a man timidly entered into the meeting place and as inconspicuously as possible sat in that designated chair. The ushers nodded to each other and refreshed their minds uh, should the, the possibility, should their responsibility, uh, you know, the unusual occur, they would need to be ready for this particular uh, man. And so the audience stood for him. And when they stood, this one man's chair was accidentally pushed aside. And so at the conclusion of the hymn, when everyone was seated, the man sat down, but without the chair beneath him, and with great clatter and even commotion, that man fell to the floor. Well, to the ushers, okay, you see, that was a signal that they that they had hoped that they would not be given. But with haste, they went into action and four stocky ushers pinned that fellow to the floor and the fifth man began uh, attempting to force something into the mouth of the victim. And a struggle ensued, but the ushers prevailed and with as much dignity as such a commotion would allow. Then suddenly the man overcame his captors, he leapt to his feet, leaving his coat behind, and ran from the building. And when an effort was made to return the coat um, to the house of the man they had called, they had discovered to their horror that he had not been able to attend the meeting after all. It was a case of mistaken identity. And so, somewhat humorous, I suppose, except for the man in the chair. He would possibly never again darken the door of a church. He knew something was different, but never did he dream that they would try to cram their religion down his throat. I mean, that, I mean can you imagine that guy? 
But there is a much more tragic kind of mistaken identity described in the Bible. It's to be mistaken or to have the assumption that you have some kind of knowledge about Christ and that type of knowledge leads you to heaven. I mean, the truth is, we know this from the Scripture, that atheists will not only be the only ones to populate hell, but also religious people that somewhat know him, but then somewhat don't know him. They kind of know him, but don't really know about Christ. And I think as we head into this season and head into this text, as you open your Bible to John chapter 7, we're going to see about some people who knew about Christ, but didn't know him all at the same time. They had a liking to his identity, but they weren't quite sure who he was. They weren't quite sure where he came from. And so I bring you back to John chapter 7. As you remember, it is the Feast of Tabernacles, the Feast of Booths. And remember, this particular feast would represent where they would remember their wilderness wanderings. Their forefathers had wandered 40 years in the wilderness, and so they set up this feast, and it was the greatest of the feast of Israel, some people felt. And to remember, people would descend into Jerusalem and they would celebrate the Feast of Tabernacles for seven days and then they have a special day on the eighth day. And as people would ascend, if you will, or ascend up to Jerusalem, they would make these tents, they would make these booths, and they would put them all around the the outer wall of Jerusalem. And then they would have celebrations, and they would have a candle celebration where they would light a candle, and they had a celebration of water, and all of that will come into picture when Jesus said, I am the light of the world. He will also say in John 7, 37, if anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. And so there was just rich symbolism. As you think of people streaming into Jerusalem for Passover, think about the Feast of the Tabernacles in the same way. In fact, all males uh, 18, 20 and above were required to be at this. And so it was a special time, a special place. And to remember earlier in chapter 7, the brothers wanted Jesus to go. They didn't want him to be in secret. They wanted him to show himself and display himself and show himself in a very demonstrable way. But he chose, do you remember, to not go with them. He said, I'm not going. And then you remember in verse 10 of chapter 7, he ended up, he did go to the feast, but he didn't go when they wanted him to go. He went up in the middle of the week. So when I say the middle of the week, the Feast of Tabernacles technically, formally, is seven days. And so instead of going on that procession with his family, he waits. And then look at 7.14. It says it there that the middle of the feast, Jesus went up into the temple and he began teaching. And so he goes when he wants in the middle and he began to teach the word of God. Now, when he went to teach the Word of God, it created an absolute stir as to who he was. If you look back in chapter 7, look at verse 12, there was much muttering about him among the people. While some said he is a good man, others said, no, he is leading the people astray. In fact, all throughout chapter 7, the Jewish leadership, as well as the people, 
had a difficult time making up in their mind exactly who Jesus was. In fact, where was he from? What was his origin? And in the midst of asking that question, there was a growing hostility of the the religious leaders that was really just foaming into a deep anger and hatred towards him. In fact, you'll find in the text before us this morning, they were seeking to arrest him. But we know from chapter 5.18, from um, here, John 7.1 and 7.20, they were actually trying to kill him. But all the way through chapter 7, there's utter confusion regarding the identity of Jesus Christ. And here we are a week before Christmas. There is absolute confusion who he is. And so the same questions they had, we have today. And you might say, well, certainly people know what Christmas is. Well, they know him and don't know him all at the same time. They know who he is, but don't know who he is. It is a question just like for the man at that revival meeting, mistaken identity. And so I ask you this morning, who exactly is Jesus Christ? What is the origin of the person of Christ? And he's clearly here in this passage will reveal himself having a divine origin. In fact, here's how chapter 7 breaks down a little bit. There are three scenes, if you will, anchored in three questions. And those questions have three answers to them. Scene one, we looked at last week, is where was Jesus trained? Where did he get this stuff in 19 through 24? Scene two is the one we come to this morning. Where is Jesus from? Verse 25 through 31. What is his origin? And then scene three is where is he actually going? And we'll look at that after Christmas. Let me read the text for you, okay? Let's look at this morning, 25 through 31. Let me read it for you. You follow along. Some of the people of Jerusalem therefore said, Is not this the man whom they seek to kill? And here he is, speaking openly, and they say nothing to him. Can it be that the authorities really know that this is the Christ? But we know where this man comes from, and when the Christ appears, no one will know where he comes from. So Jesus proclaimed, as he taught in the temple, you know me and you know where I come from, but I have not come on my own accord. He who sent me is true, and him you do not know. I know him, for I have come from him, and he sent me. So they were seeking to arrest him, but no one laid a hand on him, because his hour had not yet come. Yet many of the people believed him, and they said, when the Christ appears, will he do more signs than this man has done. Here's what we want to do this morning. I want to look at three insights that just come from this text that reveal the divine origin of Christ. Where is he from? And we'll look at three insights that will highlight that. And all of that leading to the point as a listener for you this morning, you've got to decide if this is the Christ. Is this the Christ? In fact, I've titled the message, Can This Be the Christ? So let's look at these insights together. The first one is the confusion surrounding his origin. The confusion surrounding his origin. Look at the text with me in 25. Some of the people of Jerusalem therefore said, Is not this the man whom they seek to kill? Let me just note that with you as we walk into the text as the confusion surrounds who he is. You'll note that we meet a new set of people there. It says this in 25, some of the people of Jerusalem. 
as you're walking through chapter 7 trying to interpret it, you're recognizing different crowds within chapter 7. This is a crowd of people, and you can see that they're identified there as the people of Jerusalem. There's another crowd. Remember the first crowd. Go back to chapter 7-1. It says there, at the end of 7-1, the Jews were seeking to kill him. And we noted all through John that that's not just Jewish people. That's the Jewish leaders. There's a group of people. Look at verse 11. It says there that the Jews were looking for him at the feast. Where is he? That's the Jewish leadership. But not only is there the Jewish leadership, but secondly, look over in chapter 7, verse 20. It said there that the crowd answered him, you have a demon who is seeking to kill you. So there's Jewish leadership within this Feast of Tabernacle. There is thousands of people in Jerusalem. You've got Jewish leaders there. They're looking to kill him in 7-1. But then as you come to verse 20, you've got a crowd there. And when I see that word, the crowd, that's a population that has just teamed into Jerusalem. These are Jewish people from all over the area. And now you meet this third group. Look at it again in verse 25. Some of the people of Jerusalem. And I think these people of Jerusalem may have been more familiar of the host- to the hostility between Christ and the Jewish leaders. The crowd, you remember, in verse 20, look back, said, who is seeking to kill you? As they descend into Jerusalem, they're not aware of all the Jewish leadership and what they're attempting to do. And so they said, who's seeking to kill you? You have a demon. But you'll note in verse 25 now, some of the people of Jerusalem said, it's not this the man whom they seek to kill. And they were familiar with what the Jewish leaders were doing. In fact, they were confused. In fact, you can see in verse 25, they ask it in the form of a question. I mean, they're thinking this. This is the man that they are seeking to kill. And as they come into the temple in the middle of the week, Jesus is teaching them and no one is stopping him. In fact, they expand their thought. Look at verse 26 now. Look down. It says, is not this the man whom they seek to kill? 25, now 26. And here he is speaking openly. And they say nothing to him. Can it be that the authorities really know that this is the Christ? It's a very interesting phrase there in verse 26 that Jesus is speaking openly and they say nothing to him. The idea there is that he's telling all. In other words, he's in the temple, if you will, and he's holding nothing back. He's in the temple and he's teaching and they're saying nothing to him. Now, it doesn't exactly say what he's teaching when they said that he's speaking openly, but I just take the text in the flow. He's telling them about his origin. He's telling them about his heavenly father. He's telling them about his mission, that I've been sent from God. He's telling them all the things that we've looked at in the John. Maybe he's telling them that he's the bread of life that he's already preached on. And he's beginning to tell them of who his person is. And he's now, as these Jewish crowds look in, he's speaking openly and they're saying nothing to him. I think what this Jewish crowd is thinking, if they're seeking to kill him, how come they don't arrest him on the spot? Now, what's in What's intriguing to me about that is, do you remember back in 7-4, look back there, where the disciples, actually his own brothers said in verse 4, for no one works in secret if he seeks to be known openly. 
And if you do these things, show yourself to the world. But remember, he didn't go. And so I think there's irony here. He didn't go when the brothers wanted him to go, but yet how G- now Jesus ends up in that temple in the middle of the week making strong signs, you know, making strong claims, if you will, and backing up what he's doing in his previous ministry with the signs that he performed. So there's confusion of the people as to his origin. They are perplexed at his identity. I mean, they couldn't understand. In fact, look down at the text again in verse 26. Can it be that the authorities really know that this is Christ? And there the authorities are mentioned. We know from our previous uh, uh, sermons that that is a reference to the Sanhedrin. So in other words, it's not just scribes and Pharisees. It's the Jewish authority put together. In fact, maybe the Jerusalem crowd is wondering, hey, have the Sanhedrin actually endorsed him as a candidate? Have they changed their mind on the person of Christ? Could he really be the Messiah? He's speaking openly in the temple courts, and they, do they really believe the thought is that this is the Christ? And, and if they're letting him speak, why would they do that if he's not the Christ? Why don't they arrest him? And so they begin to wonder in 26, do they know something that we don't know? And so the crowds are wondering. The Jerusalem crowd is wondering, is this the one? But you'll note that whatever looks hopeful is swallowed up in a, a very honest statement in the next verse. Look at it. It says there, or in verse 27, but we know where this man comes from. Stop there just for a second. We know where this man comes from. Now, you, you have to do a little bit of interpretation at this point. But I just, I, I note this for you. It's, it's a very subtle but an utter lack of respect, again, in the text towards Jesus. Look at it again in 27. But we know where, and remember, they never say his name. Staying true to form. They never said the name of Christ. But we know where this man comes from. And what they're saying there, if they're not agreeing, like, hey, we know where he comes from. They're actually saying, we know where he comes from. And what they're saying is, he comes from Galilee. He comes from Galilee. In fact, they, they couldn't figure out. They're confused. I mean, who exactly is he? Look back in chapter 6 just for a moment. In verse 42. Do you remember there when we saw this in 642? They said, is not this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he now say, I have come down from heaven? In, In other words, what they're saying is this can't be the Messiah. Because a Jewish person is thinking that the Messiah comes from where? From Bethlehem. But we know him. He's from Galilee. He's from up north. This couldn't be the one. Now, beloved, certainly we know if we've been in Christ for a little bit, that scripture is clear on his origin. It says in Micah 5.2, But you, O Bethlehem, Epaphra, there it is, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah. From you shall come forth uh, for me, one who is the ruler of Israel, whose coming forth is from of old and from ancient days. Micah the prophet said that the Messiah would come from Bethlehem. 
And of course, here in Matthew, Matthew is quoting that prophet in Bethlehem of Judea. For so it is written by the prophet, and you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. Here's the key. For you shall come, or from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd the people, or my people, Israel. So they're thinking, wait a minute, the Messiah, when you talk about where he comes from, he comes from Bethlehem, but they knew that Jesus came from a city called Nazareth in Galilee. In fact, do you remember earlier in John, when was it Nathaniel who asked, can any good thing come out of what? Nazareth, right? At Galilee. They knew where he was from. They, they knew where he was from. And now, how is it that he's the Messiah if he's from up north, if you will? Okay? In fact, they were thinking his family home is in Capernaum. He can't be the Messiah. And then, beloved, in Matthew chapter 13 and verse 53, he was teaching in his hometown. He was teaching them parables. And once again, like this passage, it says they were astonished. And then they asked this question, where did this man get this wisdom and these mighty works? Is this not the carpenter's son? Is not his mother called Mary? Are not his brothers people we know like James and Joseph? Joseph and Simon and Judas are not even his sisters with us. And it says in Matthew's gospel there that they took offense at him. In other words, there's great confusion. There's confusion today. I mean, where does he come from? And actually, who is he? And I tell you this, that the issue of where he comes from in terms of geography is not as important as who he is of his origin. And so they took offense at him. So there's widespread confusion on his origin. In fact, look over in chapter 7 again. And if you will, look at verse 40. They said there in 740, some of the people said, this really is the prophets. But verse 41, others said, this is the Christ. It's him. But some said, is the Christ to come from where? Galilee, that can't be in their minds. He, he, he grew up in Galilee. In fact, look at 42. It's not the scripture said that Christ comes from the offspring of David and comes from Bethlehem, the village where David was. Now this, 743. So there was division, it says, among the people over him. So the prevailing view amongst most of the Jews is that he would come from Bethlehem. But they just don't quite know who he is. In fact, it's interesting. Go back to 727. Go back to our text. It says, but we know where this man comes from. But then it says this. And when Christ appears, what's the next phrase? No one will know where he comes from. So some people think he comes from Bethlehem. Scripture. Some people think, well, wait a minute, he grew up in Galilee. Then there's another category of people in 27 that no one will actually know where he comes from. In fact, some rabbis taught that the Messiah's origin would be unknown. In fact, there's a scripture in the book of Malachi in 3.1 where there the prophet said, I send my messenger and he will prepare the way before me 
And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come into his temple. And that's in Malachi 3.1. And so some said, hey, listen, his origin would be unknown until he suddenly appeared to accomplish redemption for the nation of Israel. It would be a, a supernatural arrival. I mean, the truth is, Grace Church, that he was born in Bethlehem. He grew up in Nazareth. Mary was his mother, but Joseph was not his father. Calvin, the great church father, said of this text, he said, we are reminded how dangerous it is to twist the scriptures. And he said, even more dangerous to attack Christ by saying he is only half the person who he really is, end of quote. And I think I couldn't agree more. I mean, as we head into the Christmas season, do people know about the manger? Yes. Do people know about the animals in the manger? Yes, even though the New Testament never says there was an animal in that manger. They love all the cute trappings about, the, about Christ. They know a few features of his birth, but beloved, it is completely another thing to understand who he is to understand that he's God in the flesh. It's completely another thing to say that in him was life and he is the life and life of all men. It's another thing for them to understand that all things that have come into being have come into being by him and nothing that has come into being has come into being. That he is the creator of the world, that he was before all time. And so here there is just utter confusion surrounding the identity of Christ which leads to the second insight in the text, is the clarity of his origin. So I take you to the confusion surrounding his origin, to the clarity of his origin. It's an amazing statement. It's the words of Christ. Look at verse 28. It said, so Jesus proclaimed as he taught in the temple. And look what he proclaimed in verse 28. You know me and you know where I come from. Here he is going to give clarity regarding his origin. Now, the text says, as you just saw there in verse 28, imagine this scene. It says Jesus proclaimed as he's teaching in the temple. Imagine yourself there. He's probably in the outer court. There are thousands of people there. The rabbis are taking their positions. Jesus is one of those teaching there in the temple And they're all confused about his origin. And then the text is really clear in 28 that he proclaimed. And the Greek word there is kratzo. And it doesn't just mean that he raised his voice. He's crying out. That is the thought. It is a loud shout. In other words, as he's in the temple and he's telling them and he's hearing their confusion and he's understanding what they're saying, he now begins to teach and enters in and he begins to provide the clarity and he's making a solemn announcement. In other words, to all who were gathered in that place that he was positioned in the temple, he wanted all to hear. You say, well, what did he say? Look down at the text again. It's interesting. He says, you know me and you know where I come from. Now, there's a couple of ways that you can take that, okay? I don't know, when you read it, what do you think? I mean, was he saying, hey, you know me. You know that I came from Galilee. You know that I was, 
I, I did my ministry there. Oh, I, you know, I, I was born in Bethlehem, but then because of Herod, I moved out to this place in Nazareth. And my, you, you could just say, he, he's saying, you know me, and you know where I came from, but I don't think so. Read that statement with utter irony, okay? This is irony. I think what Jesus is saying here is, you know me, really? You, you really think you know me? I mean, this is a statement at irony at its greatest. They don't have a clue who he is. They don't know where he's from. It's surrounded in confusion, and that's just from a point of geography. He's making even a greater point. You don't really know me. Come on, I think it's just irony at its greatest. And so it's amazing. The brothers want him to go up and reveal himself openly to declare that he's the Messiah. He doesn't do that. He then goes, not in public, he goes in secret. Then when he goes in secret, he goes into the, in, into the temple. Now he cries out in the temple, and I think this is irony at its greatest. He says, you, you don't know me. Look at, look at the text again down at the scripture. It says there in verse 28, he says, but I have not come on my own accord. It's back like, go back to 716 when Jesus said, my teaching is not mine, but his who sent me. In other words, he's telling these listeners that my mission is not self-initiated. This is not my own ambition. This is not my own teaching. This is not my cause. This is not about my glory. You don't know me at all, in, in essence, is what he's saying. In fact, look again at the scripture in verse 28. He says, but I have come on my own accord, and he who sent me is true. Imagine if you're a Jewish person hearing that, that I know I don't have, this, I don't have a father as you do. I am virgin born. And the one who sent me in the previous chapters is God the Father. And that one who sent me, he said, is true. Now look what he says next. He says, I, he who sent me is true. And then this must have been biting. And him you do not, what? No. You don't know God. You're here for God, but you don't know God. You, you, in fact, you don't even know his law. Back in verses 19 through 24, you think you know the Sabbath, but you don't know the Sabbath. I mean, I don't know what your picture of Jesus is. Some mild-mannered, milk-toast kind of fellow who has no bite. Oh, no, he's got some big-time bite. He says, you don't know me. You don't know me at all. In fact, then he says, and you don't even know him. You, don't, you claim to know Moses back in chapter 5, but you don't know Moses nor the God who spoke Moses, or the God whom Moses spoke about because he, Moses, wrote about me, Jesus said. So again, this is utter irony here. As they celebrate, think about this, their loyalty to the one true God at the feast, they are rejecting Jesus, the sent one from the true God. And so they rejected Jesus and revealed their ignorance to know the God that they even professed. Look at verse 29. He says, I know him. Now, what clarity. I know him, for I have come from him, and he sent me. In other words, the son came forth from the father, and the son who came forth from the father knows him thoroughly. Jesus said, I know him. 
In fact, look back at John 1.18. I just want you to see this with your eyes. Earlier, earlier in John, remember when this wonderful statement was made here in John 1.18 that no one has ever seen God and take that as the semicolon there, end of that opening phrase. No one has seen God. But then he says, the only God, Jesus here, who is at the Father's side, that's Jesus, he has made him, what? Known. He has made him known. The one who was at the Father's side has made him known. Look over in your Bible in John chapter 6, in verse 46. It will tell us something else very careful there. In 646, he says, Not that anyone has seen the Father, except he who is from God, he has seen the Father. He says, you don't know him, but I know him, have been sent by him. I am God in the, triini- in the Trinity, and I've even seen him. Go all the way over to John 17 just for a second. Here in John 17, in that great high priestly prayer, in 1725, O righteous Father, he said, even though the world does not know you, he says, I know you. And then he says, and these that you have sent me. And so here's the great clarity. Go back to John 7 in our text now. He knows him. And I love that last little phrase in verse 29. I know him for I have come. What does it say? From him, 729. And he sent me. So as I said, his origin isn't primarily a matter of geography, though he was born in Bethlehem. His origin comes from God who sent him. So, beloved, here's the insights. There's confusion of his origin. They didn't know if he came from Galilee or if he's supposed to or he lived there, he grew up there. But the scripture and the prophets say he came from Bethlehem. Still, some rabbi said we won't know who and where he comes from, and so there's confusion. And then secondly, he clarifies his origin. He clarifies, if you will, the confusion. And then thirdly, that brings us to the final insight, to the choice of his origin. I think this is so apropos out of the text. It brings you to a choice. It brings every man to a choice. It brings every person to a choice. In other words, he has an origin. He clarifies his origin, that he's come and he's been sent by God. He's not some self-stylized prophet or guru or rabbi or teacher or philosopher and whatever else people want to say about him. He's been divinely commissioned by his father to enter into this world at his incarnation and in his birth. But he's been sent by God and his coming brings people to a choice. And there's two choices in the text. One is unbelief and the other is belief. First, unbelief. Look at verse 30. Here's their response. So they were seeking, it says, to arrest him. This is not a surprise, is it? He exposed their sin. He told them, think about that, to the Jewish leader, to the authorities, to the Sanhedrin, that you do not know the God you profess. And so their response to Christ, their response to his teaching here in verse 30 is they were seeking to arrest him. That shouldn't surprise us. They were seeking to kill him in chapter 5 and in verse 18 and chapter 7 and in verse 1. But here his coming is met by people of unbelief. These people tried to arrest him. 
This is not new to us in John. This is how some people respond to Christ. Do you remember early in John chapter 1 and verse 12? He came unto his own and his own people did not what? They didn't receive him. They didn't receive him. And it's like that today. In fact, it says this in John 3.18, whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And so here he came. Here is his origin. He came and we look back on the event and there's only a couple choices you can make, but some people live in disbelief. Look back at chapter 5 just for a moment. In chapter 5 and in Verse 37, these phrases all come together. It says, and the Father in 537, who sent me, has borne witness about me. His voice you have never heard and his form you have never seen. And you do not have his word abiding in you. And here's why. For you do not believe the one whom he has sent. I mean, that's really the issue today, isn't it? And and this is an exclusive message, isn't it, Grace Church? I mean, this is not many different paths lead to God. When you read the New Testament, it is very, very exclusive. God the Father sent His only begotten Son. And it drives people, uh, you know, to a choice. And the choice is one of unbelief or belief. And here it's unbelief. Look over at chapter 8, will you, for a moment? In chapter 8, you see that response there in similar language. He says in 8.18, does Jesus, I am the one who bears witness about myself. He says there, and the Father who sent me bears witness about me. And they said to him, therefore, where is your Father? And Jesus said, you know neither me nor my Father. If you knew me, you would know my Father also. So they just didn't know. Look down at chapter 8 and verse 55. There it says, but you have not known him. In other words, there was unbelief. A prophet is not without honor, Jesus said, except in his own hometown, in his own household. And he did not do many miracle or mighty works there because of their unbelief. And so because of their unbelief, Look back in chapter 7. It just says there, and we've seen this before, that they wanted to arrest him. Verse 30, but no one laid hand on him because his hour had not yet come. In other words, that hour of his cross, that hour of his crucifixion, it had not arrived. It would arrive in six months, but not at the Feast of Tabernacles. So even though they're planning to arrest him, even though there's people seeking to kill him, that hour had not come because the timetable in God's mind here would have been the Passover, which would have been in April. And so the hand of a sovereign God restrained them, right? We talk a lot about his sovereignty here. His sovereign hand was restraining that moment. And so they couldn't get to him. And so though he's surrounded by the hatred of the leaders, Jesus was free from all danger because of God's sovereignty. So there's the first choice. What choice will you make? That's the choice of unbelief. And many live in that unbelief today. They have not believed in his person, in his works, in his words. And so it's a question, is it not, of mistaken identity. It can be horrible. However, mistaken identities surrounding the person of Christ can send someone straight to hell. That's just the truth of Scripture. 
He, he has come, amen? And he, and he came in humility. And his origin is clear. He's been sent from God. His words are from God. He speaks what God speaks. He performs the works that God wanted him to f- perform. And it drives people to a decision. And it is that way. You either live in unbelief or... But there's a second choice and there's hope. Amen? There's hope. Look at it in verse 31. Do you see that there? Yet many of the people believed in him. And they said, when the Christ appears... Will he do more signs than this man has done? And so here's the second choice is one of belief. Now, it is a question, admittedly, in 31, what kind of faith is this? We've often been saying throughout John's gospel that that faith that is based on miraculous signs is not always commended in John's gospel. We saw that in John chapter 2 and in John chapter 6. But nevertheless, it says that here, that many of the people believed on him. And I take that, beloved, not as a disgenuine faith, but as a genuine faith. He wasn't performing a miracle in this scene in chapter 7. He did in 6. He fed the 5,000. He's teaching them at the temple. And some people place their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And so I believe it's a true faith. They believe in what he said. They believe in who he is. And so you have this dual pattern emerging from John that some are obstinate, some are doubtful, some are unbelieving. However, there are a group of people in verse 31 that place their confidence in him, that place their hope in him, that place their trust in him, and they did so for the forgiveness of their sins based on what he would do on the cross and his death his resurrection, his ascension to glory. In fact, I love that statement in John 1, but all who did receive him, who believed in his name, to them he gave the right to become what? Children of God. So listen, I offer you Christ this morning. I offer you Christ for your sin, Christ for your unbelief. It's the person of Christ. And so you either come to a point where you place your hope in him Or you live in a status of unbelief. But it would be my prayer that you place all of your hope in the Lord Jesus Christ. And know his power to transform you. But listen, he's clear, isn't he? And he is Lord. He is God. He is risen from the dead. He is the one who has authority to forgive your sins and my sins. And he did all of that based on his death on the cross. So there's confusion, there's clarity, and there's a choice. And I'm just asking you this morning, have you placed your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ? Have you believed on him? Have you understood that he's the only savior, that there is no other savior for your sin other than him? Listen, it'd be a horrible thing to have your identity taken. But it's infinitely a greater thing to have a mistaken identity about the person of Jesus Christ when he's been crystal clear in the scripture. You know, I was thinking, it's probably, I don't know, it's probably not good to say. You don't think too much. It's not in my notes. But I was thinking that they sentenced, did they not, Dylan Root this week, the man who went into that African-American church and went into a prayer meeting in that church and was praying with those people, what they would say is at least an hour praying with them. Then while their heads are down and bowed, 
he pulls out his pistol and he begins to just shoot people, changing clips while he's shooting people and then finding people who had scattered under the benches and under the chairs and shooting more. And so they handed down justice to him and declared him guilty on 33 accounts. You've maybe heard that. His sentencing will be in the month of January. And certainly there is obviously justice in that sense in our land that we have through the court system. I don't think they deliberated more than just a couple hours, 33 counts, guilty on all of them. Um, But I thought to myself, it's one thing for him to face a jury, which obviously a wicked crime, but beloved, it's another thing to stand before the living God, isn't it? For him and for anybody. And when that day comes, it won't only be Dylan Root, it will be every man, woman, and child who's ever had breath on the face of the earth will stand and give an account to Almighty God. And on that day, you may have had your credit card taken and your identity taken at some point at some place, but that's nothing compared to the tragic reality of rejecting Christ. And so listen, I'm just here as as a teaching pastor, to offer you the Lord Jesus Christ. He's the only one that can offer hope. He's the only one that can offer eternal life. He's the only one who has the authority to forgive your sins. And that one who was God from all eternity came and put himself in the womb of a teenage girl that ultimately would be born to go to the cross to die in our place. We have a wonderful Savior, don't we?